0: Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word handy, you can be turning to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew 24, but also be referencing a couple other of the accounts of uh, Mark and of Luke. And we'll uh, turn there as we have time. But we are so thankful that you are with us today. We're so thankful for the opportunity to encourage one another on this day of worship. Uh, Just one more reminder, this was said during the announcements, but we'll also have a chance to encourage ourselves uh, next Saturday with our, our Christmas breakfast. And just a reminder to to sign up for that today and to pay your money today so that we can be sure and get that turned into the caterer and have everything prepared. That way we'll look forward to a great morning together of of good food and fun and laughter and enjoying uh, this holiday season together next Saturday morning but especially on days like today that we can come together on this first day of the week and worship God together and also fellowship uh, with our lunchtime here in just a few moments and with our afternoon service, we hope you can be a part of any or everything that we have going on here with the Saudi Church. We appreciate those who have led us so far, Charles, and picking out the songs that he did that go along with the lesson and Clayton and his thoughts as he prepared, thinking about the Lord's death and helping us to think about that as we honor him in that way as we do each first day of the week. And we appreciate so much Gary and the wording of his prayer and appreciate you for your participation. You know, I think it was 2019, maybe the first winter that I had been here, that I made the statement in late January or early February that you had to be living under, under a rock to know that it, was not, that it was Super Bowl Sunday, to not know that. And I learned then that Lance Ritchie lives under a rock because he had no idea that it was Super Bowl Sunday I have another friend, she's not here today, so I can pick on her as well, uh, Sherry Friedel, who doesn't watch the news. And some of you may say, I'm kind of in that boat too, I don't really care to watch and keep up with what all is going on. But if you were to sit down with Sherry today, if you could, or sometime and say, boy, it's really difficult and it's really sad the things that are going on in Israel and in the Middle East right now, she'd raise her eyebrows and say, I have no idea what you're talking about because Sherry doesn't watch the news either, kind of like Lance. But if you keep up at all with the news or see a newspaper headline or you've been on social media or anything like that, you may have seen a picture like this or a phrase that talks about praying for peace for Israel. Today we're going to talk a little bit about what's been going on in the news and in particular what's going on when we think about scripture and what scripture says. Because to begin this morning, I need to make a disclaimer that I'm not a political expert in any form or fashion. My family likes to give me a hard time. In fact, my brother, middle brother did on Wednesday night when we were in West Tennessee and we attended a a large gathering for a a singing. They call it a thanks singing. And he gave the kids a hard time as they were having to sit and wait for me to speak to everybody in the auditorium as preachers often have to do. And he said, don't you know that your dad's a politician? I said, I'm not a politician, although I do like to get to know people and and to visit and to shake hands. I'm not a political expert. I have I can't even tell you most of what's been going on or the details. I know that things change and and things are happening. And so I've not kept up with all of it myself. And of course, I don't have it all figured out. And I don't mean just in the political sense either, but even in the scriptural sense. I I don't know everything there is to know about all of this because I I listened to a lot of lessons this week. I, I read a lot of material. I tried my best to think about these things and figure out a way to share it with you. Because it's important as it's going on around us. But I hope that while I may not have it all figured out, that I, I hope that I can help us to think biblically about these people, so to speak, and about this land. To begin today, we want to talk about one of the most misused texts in all of Scripture. In fact, if you open up to Matthew chapter 24 there, you may be saying, I have no idea what you're talking about, preacher. I I mean, Matthew 24 is in there, but I've never read it, or I don't know. Some of you may have heard it before or had discussions, but just let me show you. When you open up there, in verse number 6, you see the phrase, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You see in verse number 7, there will be famine and earthquakes in various places. You see, even see in verse number 9, the use of the word tribulation. Go over maybe a page in your Bible if you have to, but to verse number 40, and you see the phrase 40 and 41, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Now, some of you may be saying, okay, well, I've heard those things before, it just so happened that I was in the community the other day and just happened over here a conversation and it seemed like it was some some men who who go to church together and they were thinking about this idea of of these things and whether or not these things are signs signs of the times if you have a bulletin in front of you you may have noticed the headlines or the titles for today the question is, and, and I, was, I laughed when I looked at it a few minutes ago just to be sure, but, but both the titles have question marks, and you may think the preacher didn't know what he was going to talk about if that was a question when he put the titles out there. But no, the question is, are the things that are taking place around us today signs of the times? Because you will find people up and down this community and across this state and even around the world who will say that, yes, that's exactly what's going on. There are, there are earthquakes, there are famines, there are these things, wars that are happening in the Middle East, in Israel, and that must be a sign of the time. And we hope that you can be back with us this afternoon again at 1.30. If you have a bulletin, you'll notice. Again, I'm not an expert, but I hope to try to help us think a little bit about some things we can, can write down, some things that we can know that we can tell our friends when they maybe bring up, what do you think about what's happening in Israel? They may say, what does your preacher say? What does your church think about the things that are taking place in the Middle East right now? And again, I'll do my best to, to share what I think, what I think the Bible is saying, what others sort of agree upon, and maybe we can have a picture by the time the day is over today. Matthew chapter 24 is one of the most debated texts in scripture because a lot of people read these things and they read those phrases we made mention a moment ago and they have questions and they point towards these things being signs of the end of the world. We'll talk more about that as we go through this lesson but to begin this morning from Matthew chapter 24 we want to notice a few things that help us understand the context. Right? We talk about that a lot. In fact I listened to one fellow preacher, who went almost through the back half of the book of Matthew. If you go back and begin in Matthew chapter 19 or 20, and you read through 21 and 22, and then you go past chapter 24, it fits in perfectly. We don't have to pull it out and make it this special thing about the end of the world, even though that's what people often do. So in its context, let's try to think very quickly here and notice a few things about what is taking place. First of all, in Matthew chapter 24, let's notice the location. Again, if you're like me, it's very easy often to read over the black letters in, in your Bible, in Scripture, and to sort of pass by what's happening. But if we're trying to set the stage for our minds, we have to notice these things. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1, Then Jesus went out and departed, you might want to circle it if you'd like to write in your Bible, but from the temple. He departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of, and if you want to again, the temple. The location is the temple. And what's taking place is the fact that Jesus is probably walking out of this grand temple for the last time of his life. We are nearing his death upon the cross as you read Matthew's account of Jesus' life here. And so this may be the very last time he set foot inside that temple. He is walking out with his disciples and they make mention of this beautiful temple. Now of course this is just a rendering. This is not a picture we don't know for sure. But I don't think we can do it justice when we try to imagine the beauty of Herod's temple. And what the the disciples say in this moment essentially is, look, now we're going to go to Mark and Luke in just a moment, but, but we'll give you those passages, and it's interesting to try to read this and compare those, but they essentially say, look, maybe the best thing that we could come up with for our day and time would be maybe some of the buildings in Washington, D.C., you know, things like the Capitol, I'm not suggesting, obviously, that we we worship, in a sense, America or our buildings here. But you understand the idea of, of if you took your family to the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and you walked out, you might as a parent turn around and say, look, look at this magnificent building that's so beautifully constructed that represents our country and the things that take place here. They are saying, look. And when they say that, they're mentioning Again, I don't, I don't think we can do it justice. The, the compound was so large. The building was so large. Some say that some of the stones were about 40 feet in length. I mean, they were massive. And they are commenting on, what, commenting on what these things look like. Now, hold your place there and look over in Mark chapter 13 for just a moment. Mark's account of this is in Mark chapter 13. And I want you to notice what Mark says. Because Mark says in Mark 13... And verse number one, then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And then notice, jump down for the, for the moment to verse number three. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, and we'll stop right there for just a moment. It seems as if they they traverse some ground and end up, and I didn't try to find a picture because there may not be a good one, on the side of the mountain across from the city, looking down now on this temple, asking these questions and talking to Jesus. It is a beautiful location, and it is important to the Jews, and they are asking him about this. They're saying, look at this great monument, this great place where worship takes place and so many things occur right here. And I have to imagine, as Jesus says, and I don't know if you're in Matthew or still in Mark, but of course they're, you know, sort of the same thing. Matthew 24 and verse 2, after they say, look at this, Jesus says, do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. He essentially says it is going to be destroyed. You know what's one of the most amazing, crazy things that ever happens in a movie? You know, if they're trying to think, figure out what would make the biggest impact in a movie. You know what it usually is? It's the destruction of Washington, D.C., Right? It's taking down the White House or the Capitol Building or something like that. Again, I know this is not a perfect comp, but just try to help me here and understand that if we were to walk out with our family outside of the Capitol Building and turn around and say, hey, in a year or in a few years, this is going to be rubble. There's not going to be one stone left upon another. People would kind of be scratching their heads. Kids would be saying, what do you, what do you mean? What are you talking about? This is the position that the disciples are in. They're imagining as we would, man, The White House, nobody can overtake that. The Capitol building, it's well protected. You know, the other thing that I couldn't help but think about was along the lines of the Titanic, right? This massive ship at the time set sail and people are thinking it's indestructible. Nobody can touch it. The disciples sort of have that feeling as they're thinking about the temple and they're sort of scratching their heads as they're trying to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. You mean to tell me this building is going to lie in ruins? So then the next part of our context here is they ask two questions, right? In verse number three, if you're still there in Matthew's account, as they sit on the Mount of Olives, they come to him privately and say, tell us, number one, when will these things be? When will these things be? Question number one. Question number two, and some people would call it three, You'll see here two phrases. You might could call them the second question or together or separate as two and three. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? For our purposes this morning, we'll call it two questions. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? Now, with all that Jesus is fixing to say and everything we made mention of just a few moments ago, it's important to note he was asked two questions. And he's going to answer those questions. Now, obviously, as you look through Matthew 24, it's 51 verses long and we don't have time to read all of it. Let's, for our purpose of context, try to cut it in half and to try to understand then when Jesus is answering these two questions. And an important part here is what I'm calling the conjunction, right? The conjunction. And let me ask you to turn to verse number 36. Verse number 36, our important conjunction here is the word but. Right at the beginning of verse number 36, B-U-T, but. It's a conjunction that is used to connect two ideas, or in our case, two questions, but two questions that contrast. So this is another great place to make a notation in your Bible if you like to do that. And it may be to draw a line after verse number 35 to separate verse 35 from that conjunction in verse number 36. And you can even underline if you like to again as we talked about underlining words, notice in verse 33 Jesus says, so when so you also when you see all these underline these things, know that it is near at the doors. assuredly I say to you this generation will by no means pass away till all Underline, these things take place. So we're talking about these things up to verse number 34 and even verse number 35. And then he finishes here with beginning in verse number 36. But, but, but what Jesus? I have underlined in my Bible, but of that. These, these, that. There's a difference here these things, these things, but of that day and hour, no one knows. And it's here that he's changed to the last question. So there's two sections as he is speaking about these things. And even to sort of finish up the first section, what was the first question? The first question was, when will these things be? He tells a parable in verse 32 about the parable of the fig tree, that when the fig tree When its branches have become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. We love the orange and brown and the colors around the fall here on these mountains as we look at fall is coming. And most of us really enjoy as well, well, despite our allergies, we enjoy the spring when things start budding and green comes out. And we can see that spring and summer is Near. He tells us to let them know that these things, these things will take place. But there's one more part here, and that is the key. The key is verse number 34 when Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now there is a great scholarly I don't know the exact word I'm looking for, but a great scholarly discussion that we could have on the Greek word that's used here and all of this and other places it's used, the word generation. But the key is, is that Jesus is saying that all of these things will take place before this generation is gone. That's not some kind of reference to a far-off time or a far-off generation. You people who are standing here will see these things. In regards to the first question, Brother Wayne Jackson in on the Christian Courier website and in his New Testament commentary says it this way, it should be obvious that the events of Matthew 24 verses 4 through 34, that first section, have to do with the generation that is contemporary with the Lord. The Christians could look for certain telltale indicators that are detailed by Jesus here and they could know That the Lord's judgment upon Jerusalem was near. Then Jesus says in verse 36 But of that day of the Son's final coming knoweth no one except the Father. So there's a clear contrast here between Jesus' temporal activity here on this earth, chronicled up to verse 34, and that of the Lord's judgment at the end of time. The first 34 verses are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that would occur in A.D. 70. The Romans would invade. They would take that temple and tear it, as we say, limb from limb, stone by stone. And as Jesus said, it took place. Not one stone was left upon another. In fact, it's my understanding that some people say that there has been fighting for years over where exactly the temple stood. You know what that means? That means that somebody could go back to that land and they can't say, oh, well, here's where the temple was. Here's those bricks that, that formed the foundation. Here's the cornerstone. It was destroyed in such a way that nobody could tell where it even stood. And for, here's the key part of it for, for them. For the disciples, they likely thought that the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world were the same thing. So let me ask you one more time. If I took you outside the Capitol building and I said that within a certain amount of time, this was going to be destroyed, what would you probably think? Probably think it's going to be the end of the world, right? At least in a very large sense, maybe that that time is not going to stop, but, but in a sense that the United States is going to come to an end and that's going to be a big deal for us. They're looking at the temple and Jesus is saying that the destruction of the temple is going to occur and they're thinking, well, that's a big deal. It's just like it's the end of the world. But here's the thing. Jesus separated those two things and he separated it with the key which is verse 34 because what's he saying up to verse 34 you can know you can know and then what does he say in verse 36 but you can't know wait a minute that doesn't make sense that's kind of hard to understand unless you look at the key and realize that what he's saying is the things that would occur in the first 34 verses would occur soon before that generation passed away And what would occur at the end of time or at the end when the Son of Man comes, no man knows. You can't know. Now let's think as we think about what else is taking place here, three things that we can learn. And I hope this continues to to draw these together in your mind, these two occasions. Three things that Jesus is showing us in this section of Scripture here. Number one, that the temple would be destroyed and Judaism would be destroyed with it. Now, here's the thing about Judaism. Judaism must have a temple because at the temple, that is where worship and sacrifice takes place. That is where those things were to occur. It's why it was so magnificent. It's why it's believed, if again, I was reading so much this week, I hope I don't misquote things, but I believe one text said that the grounds could hold almost 200,000 people in, in that section, not just in the temple maybe, but the entire grounds around it. It was an important place to Judaism. And here's the thing. When that is destroyed, you can no longer have Judaism. Jesus showed this to be the case as well. If you're in Matthew, if you turn back to Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17, he showed this prophetically when he did what? He cleansed the temple. You know what we do about cleansing the temple? We usually make it about Jesus' anger. And you know what? It's okay for me to be angry, right? Because Jesus was angry when he cleansed the temple. Well, there's a sense in which he's showing a righteous anger, maybe, but there's also a sense in which he is prophetically saying, this temple is going to be no good anymore. It's not going to be here. And it's really the idea that there is this magnificence of an externalized religion that is really actually empty without Jesus. You know what the temple didn't have? It didn't have Jesus because Jesus was going to do away with the old law and he was going to be the sacrifice. And all of this brilliance, all of this magnificence around was really just an empty shell without Jesus. Do you know what this place can be? It can be an empty shell without Jesus. It doesn't have to be the most beautiful building in the world, but people can come and be here and show this externalized religion where we look like we're doing what's right, we feel like we're dressed right, we feel like we're saying the right things, but we're really missing Jesus. That's the problem. The destruction of the temple for them... Seem like the end of the world. And it would be a big deal as we're going to see further here in just a moment. But it's not the end of the world as in the coming of Jesus, the return, Jesus' second coming, as we'll talk about. Instead, the temple will be destroyed. That's what he's saying here. And with it, Judaism would be as well because they will not even be able to tell where the temple was. Do you know what would happen if you could tell that? If you could have some of these relics. I heard one preacher say that the fact that Jerusalem was basically wiped off the face of the earth, so to speak, was so that we wouldn't go back there and have some kind of relics to hold on to, right? Because you know where God is not anymore? God is not in Jerusalem, right? The center of worship is not Jerusalem. We can worship in Soddy Daisy, Tennessee, even this day. I heard one preacher say that, that if we were able to, and we were able to find Peter's baking pan You know, we would hold it up and say, I've got Peter's baking pan. You know, look at what I've got. This must be something magnificent. It's not about that. It's not about Jerusalem anymore. The temple will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be overrun. And with it, Judaism will come to an end as well. Number two from this section of scripture, the message from Jesus is, don't be fooled by the false prophets. Don't be fooled by those who speak in ignorance and in error Or even in malice about these things. Don't believe the people who are saying this must be a sign. Because what Jesus said is, that's not what this means. That's not what I'm trying to tell you, that these things would be a sign of his coming in fact what he says here is that these things happen these events occur around the world and they will continue to happen but they are not a sign of the coming of Jesus in fact if you want to hold your place there and turn very quickly over to Luke Luke chapter 21 so I've given you Mark 13 Luke 21 is the other place if you're making notes and you could do a little further digging yourself but Luke chapter 21 beginning in verse number 20 that Jesus says here, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. He said the thing that he's referring to is the armies that surround Jerusalem. And when that happens, what you need to do is you need to flee. Now, go back to Matthew 24. I've just been more comfortable here. These things are said in all these places. But Matthew 24, verses 17, 18, and 19. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. What he's saying is, is when the destruction is coming upon Jerusalem, you need to flee. You need to get out. You don't need to spend time going back to get things. You need to be ready to head to the hills. And it's going to be trouble even for those who are pregnant and nursing because you know what it's harder for them to do? It's going to be harder for them to, to flee, to get out of the city. So here's the question that I think is kind of interesting here. If all of these things in the first 34 verses where we just were, if all of these signs of the times are pointing towards the end of the world, as many people say, why would you flee? Why would Jesus tell them to flee if it's the end of the world that he's talking about? Well, there's no point in fleeing. And there would be no point in fleeing if they're not able to get out of the city, but many of them were. In fact, another historical fact that I was trying to kind of verify for sure, but it's supposed that as the Roman armies came to surround Jerusalem, that for some reason they actually pulled back for a short time. And that people were actually able to flee out of the city. And so going further in Matthew chapter 24, what Jesus is talking about here is the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. And what he says in verse number 20 is, pray that it won't be winter, pray that it won't be cold, and pray that it won't be the Sabbath. Well, Why is that? Well, I for one can attest to the fact that my family had trouble getting out of the house this morning when it was about 40 degrees outside, right? Getting moving when it's cold. If you know anything about the Jews you know that it would be hard for them to travel on the Sabbath because they're only able to go so far, right? And what they believe by Sabbath and the travel laws. So he's saying, pray that it won't be at this time so that you'll be able to flee and get out of the city before the destruction comes. I don't want these things to happen to you. And these first 34 verses are talking about the the destruction of Jerusalem. Very quickly, before we look at our last point, then in verse number 36, that changed to that second question. Their second question being, what will be the sign of your coming? He says in verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows. No one knows. And so the main point, here's the main point. Turn back with me to Mark again, because Mark says it so beautifully. Mark chapter 13, Mark 13, beginning in verse 32. So notice here that Mark, as you turn back, Mark 13 has the similar language, right? But of that day, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the father. Now listen, watch verse 33, take heed, watch, pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house, gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to keep watch watch therefore for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening at midnight at the crowing of the rooster or in the morning lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping and what i say to you i say to all watch the main point of all of this maybe we could say is that jesus is telling us to watch take heed watch and pray. I say to you all, watch. And here's the point. We don't know when the end of the world will come. We don't know when Jesus will return. We sang just a few moments ago, it won't be very long. I think that's true. We can sing that with confidence. I know that 60 and 70 and 80 and 90 years on this earth seems like a long time at times, but it won't be very long. We know that in the grand scheme of eternity, we're talking about thousands of years before eternity, and eternity, 60, 70, 80, 90 years is not long, hundreds of years is not long. It won't be very long, but we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared. Here's two things I think I can say about this section of scripture and what Jesus is saying here. First of all, I think it's safe to say, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. We sang the song a few moments ago. We shall see the King someday. You know what we didn't sing? We shall see the King on January first, two thousand. Right? A lot of people thought the world was going to end on that day. We didn't sing. We shall see the King in nineteen ten when Halley's Comet was supposed to come and ride and destroy, and the end of the world was coming. We shall see the King in nineteen ninety four. When Harold Camping said that the world was going to end. And I've had a list. I think I've used it in a sermon before. I saw another preacher that was doing a lesson similar that used it. But had a list of all the dates, right? 2012, was 2012 the Mayans, right? I can't remember exactly. But all the dates, all the years that have come and gone in which someone has said, I know, I know when the world is going to end. I know when Jesus is coming back. I don't know when Jesus is coming back but I do know that Jesus is coming back. In fact, the example that Matthew uses, that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 that's recorded for us, is the idea of Noah. Right after that, when Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no man knows, verse 37, he begins with the time of Noah. Do you know what happened in Noah's day? People said, I don't think it's happening. I don't think it's coming. This crazy guy keeps preaching, and he's building this boat, but there's been no rain yet until the time came. And what were they? They were unprepared. I don't know when he is coming back, but I do know that he is coming back. So be ready. Take heed. Watch, pray, and be prepared. The thing is, is that Matthew 24 is not the key to unlocking the end of the world. And we can throw in with that Mark 13, we can throw in that Luke 21 this passage is important, but it's not the key, as many would allege, as what's taking place in the Middle East right now or any other time in the, in the future until Jesus comes back, that this is the key to unlocking the end of the world. What I hope you gain from this lesson this morning is a bit of an understanding that, first of all, and here's a, a little a sneak peek to this afternoon, a little spoiler alert one of the first points we're going to make this afternoon is that war is awful, war is terrible. I hope that you gain from this lesson this morning with a bit of an understanding that while the war is awful and while we hate the taking of life that is going on anywhere in the world and even in the Middle East, it's not a sign of the end of the days, the end of the times. While it's horrible and we wish it would stop, those things are not signs from Scripture that are pointing towards some event taking place. Matthew 24 is not the key to unlocking all of that, but it is a warning From the Son of God to be prepared. Do you know what comes after Matthew chapter 24? Besides Matthew chapter 25, you know what's in there if you're still open? It's a parable. Right after Jesus says these things about the destruction of Jerusalem that would occur, we know from history that it occurred in AD 70 when the Romans invaded and it was basically wiped off the face of the earth you know what he says after he talks about that for 34, 35 verses? And then he talks about the Son of Man coming and watch and pray and take heed and be prepared. He tells, tells a parable about ten virgins, five who were foolish and unprepared and five who were wise. You see, if you want to take this chapter in context, you need to notice that in context, right after he talks about no one knowing, then he tells this parable that we need To be ready and so the question is very simple this morning are you ready you see there's all this stuff about Israel there's all this stuff about the Middle East going on and we try to understand it biblically there's all this that Jesus says here and I hope that you have just maybe a little bit clearer picture of what's taking place what Jesus is meaning here when he talks about these two questions when he answers them but ultimately the question ends the same way to those people it was are you ready For us this morning, the question is very simple, are you ready? See, as Clayton talked about so well for us in our thoughts this morning, Jesus has made a way possible. God had a scheme of redemption, a plan to save mankind. It involved his son coming and shedding his blood on the cross for the sins of you, the sins of me, and the sins of the world, in a sense. So if you're here this morning and you've never been washed in the blood, we'll be singing to encourage you. That you would obey God's simple plan of salvation. That you would be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins so that the Lord can add you to his church. Sometimes people look at this and it's as confusing maybe to the as Matthew 24 or other passages of scripture. And we try to say quite often that if you want to study more about God's simple plan of salvation, we would study with you as soon as possible because it is the greatest choice a person can make here upon this earth. The choice to be ready. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that in times past. But you've wandered away. See, sometimes it's easy to make preparations for something. And when things are delayed and they're delayed and they're delayed, we lose our preparation. In the days of Noah, people were not prepared. Think about what Peter says. We don't have time to get there this morning. But Peter talks about the the day of the Lord. Peter talks about a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. But what's he saying? That God is patient. He is long-suffering that no one should perish but that all should come to repentance. Maybe you're here this morning and you've become a Christian in times past, but you've wandered away. You've allowed the time to sort of take away your preparation. Don't wait. Don't delay. Be prepared. Be ready. Maybe you need to become a Christian. Maybe you need to come back to him, but the question is very simple. Are you ready as we stand together and as we sing?